be reading in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Dylan, I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for joining us. We trust that the Word of God is inspired by Him, written for our, uh, our help and encouragement. It's to inform and instruct all that we do here, and that's what we hope for at Sojourn. Well, fresh off of a championship loss in football, one coach took his players back to the fundamentals. This is what one author writes. He said, he took nothing for granted, he began a tradition of starting from scratch, assuming that the players were blank slates who carried over no knowledge from the year before. He began with the most elemental statement of all. Gentlemen, he said, holding up a pigskin in his right hand, this is a football. Can you guess the coach of this team? Any guesses out there for any coaches? Vince Lombardi. He was speaking to the fresh-off-the-NFL championship loss, Green Bay Packers. Here they are, favored in the season. They end up losing in the Super Bowl, no, before the Super Bowl, the NFL championship game. And he brings these 38 or so professionals back after this championship loss, and he holds up to them a football and has to say, this is a football starting from scratch. Now, John writes, First John, he writes this book for our assurance that we might know if we believe in Jesus that we have eternal life. And John hasn't given us some sort of secret sauce to, to, to assure us of our faith in Jesus. He hasn't given us, here's the depths of the mystery of, of hearing that secret whispering so that you'll know that you're his or that you're not. What he has done is he's affirmed the fundamentals, eternal life in Jesus' name. Abiding in Jesus, confessing sins and turning away from them for forgiveness, confessing Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, walking in light as He is in the light, keeping the Word. And in this passage, He calls for another fundamental, almost like this is a football, love one another. He doesn't just call us to love one another, but he points to love for one another as evidence that there is actual life in Christ, in any individual. So he says, and he writes this, so that we would love one another. And this command to love one another is central to John's message, and it's going to control from verse 11 all the way through verse 18, this entire section it's going to control. And he starts here in verse, the verses we were covering this morning with the negative side of it. So, so here's what it isn't. Here's what love for one another shouldn't be like, and then he'll move to the positive later on. And so he starts with the negative, and I have it divided in three don'ts. Don't be like Cain. Don't be surprised. And don't abide in death. 
Now, again, he'll move to what it should look like, but he begins with these don'ts for his readers. He's been drawing, as you've been with us in in 1 John, he's been drawing some distinct lines for his readers, lines between the world and and the fellowship of, of those that John shares fellowship with, the fellowship of Christ. He's been saying things like he said in verse 10, that by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Children of God, children of devil, very distinct line. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. These are needed distinctions because they, the attempt that is being made on this congregation that John writes to is the att- attempt to deceive them, to pull them away from the truth. And so he draws very distinct lines so that they would know, we don't want to go this way. That's a distinct line that John helped us walk away from. We want to stay and be maintained over here. And in verse 11, he gives a divine should. He says, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This is a football. John has told them in chapter 2, verse 7, he told them to love one another. He says, I'm writing you an old command. It's also kind of new. But even there, he says, this isn't a new command in the sense that I'm giving it to you. You had it from the beginning. In other words, when he brought the gospel, he he also brought with it this message that this gospel works its way out into love for others, that there is no conception in John's mind or in the mind of the New Testament uh, that of receiving Jesus, believing in Jesus, having faith in Jesus, and for that belief, that faith not to work its way out into love for others who love Jesus. Love for others is then rooted in the gospel, but it's also rooted in the very style of Jesus. You remember he says in chapter 2, I'm giving you an old command, but it's also new in Christ. It's new in the sense that you now know how to walk this out in a way that you hadn't before by seeing the life of Jesus and how he loved us. We ought to walk in that same kind of love. He is, after all, the way. And there's this divine should here to love one another. But on the heels of the should is a should not, a don't. Verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Now the allusion here to Cain takes us all the way back to to Genesis. And you remember, God created all things and he created them good. And he put man and woman in the garden to, to keep and work in this garden to spread out his dominion everywhere on this earth that he created, to hold dominion over all the earth. A snake slithers in and, and ruins things as they're tempted to disobey God, to, to doubt his goodness and to go against his word and to eat the tree he told them not to eat. So they sin, and that's what we call the fall. But when God addresses them after the fall, he, he is passing out curses because of the fall. He warned them, if you do this, you will surely die. And he's telling them of the curses. And listen to what he says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that explains so much of the scripture. He says, this is kind of the first pronouncement of the gospel. I will put enmity between you, he's speaking to the serpent, the evil one, enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, speaking of offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And he's looking forward to the offspring, the seed of the woman who is going to come and finally triumph over the serpent in a way that the first Adam couldn't. The second Adam's going to come in and do that. But you see these two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There's, there's enmity between them. And it doesn't take long to see how 
vast the difference is in the story of Genesis. So if you look in Genesis chapter 4, the the difference between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent couldn't be more evident than in the story of Cain and Abel, which is just on the heels uh, of the fall, right? We, We have the garden, you have Adam and Eve, and then they start having children, and then man, first generation out of the gates, and we're in all sorts of evil. Listen to Genesis chapter 4 verse 1. Adam knew his wife, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock of their, and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now it seems as if like maybe God's being a little unfair here, but the problem with Cain's sacrifice wasn't the type of sacrifice, wasn't the amount of sacrifice. The the problem, the issue that God had was was Cain's heart. Abel, we, we hear later in Hebrews, was offering his offering by faith. He had a faithful heart, a desire to love and please God, and Cain didn't. And that's the difference in their offerings. The issue was Cain's sinful heart. His heart was ruled by sin. But God here, he's so gracious, he goes to him and invites him into something better, a better way. And even after warning him, imagine hearing a warning from God himself. This is what Cain heard, and God warned him. And even after that warning, Cain's sinful heart continued to rule. His sinful anger led to sinful murder. Verse 8, Genesis 4, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and he killed him. This is the seed of the serpent. Here's one that's from the evil one, who'd let his heart be ruled by sin and wickedness. And why does he kill him? Well, John tells us why he kills him in 1 John. Look back at 1 John 3, 12. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brother's righteous. Instead of ruling over sin, sin ruled over Cain. And sin never keeps to itself. It overflows onto whatever's around it. And here it erupts violently onto Cain's brother Abel. Now notice this, that this sin that's at work in him leads to murder of his brother We could say it this way, failure to love his brother leads to murder. Failure to love his brother doesn't lead Cain to try to stop the offerings from happening, right? He doesn't try to like put out Abel's fire every time he's trying to offer a burnt offering to the Lord. He he doesn't go and mess with his flock and try to hide the sheep that that Abel wants to use for an offering. He he doesn't do any of that. He doesn't even say, you know what, I'm going to try to persuade him to change from, from offering things from the flock to doing something more like me and offering grain. He doesn't do any of that. He goes after Abel himself. Failure to love his brother erupts not into those ways, but onto Abel himself because he hates him. And in a way, then, Abel is the antithesis to the one we know as Jesus, right? 
Jesus was the one who came and, and lovingly laid down his life for others, and Cain is the one who takes another's life because of his own evil heart. And John says, putting up this example, don't be like that. Don't be like Cain. Love one another. Now, in our current setting, uh, it, it might be a little bit easy to kind of look down on Cain and, and forget a little bit about his context where violence might put you ahead a little bit further than maybe in our context, but we need to be careful on these different contexts. And one author, I think, says it well. She writes, for many of us in the West today, our selfishness is not served by violence. My life would not improve if I committed murder, but put me in a situation like Cain, where violence is to my advantage, at least that's what he thought, right? Violence is to my advantage, and who knows what I might be capable of. Before we start looking down on Cain and how could it lead this far, how could it go to this, think about it. If I could gain an advantage by being violent, by murdering, would I do it? And be careful with the answer from your heart, knowing that we are sinful, where there's jealousy, where there's anger, where there's hatred, this could be possible. Jesus warns us, doesn't he? In Matthew chapter 5, this is the Sermon on the Mount, he, he warns us about these kind of things. Matthew 5, verse 21, says, you've heard that it is said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. There's we are, we're like, hey, we wouldn't murder, wouldn't be like Cain. But apparently, John needs to tell us, don't be like Cain, because he does. But Jesus says this, verse 22, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. We may not sin against the, the, the letter of the law and murder, but, but what about the spirit of the law that Jesus gets at here on the Sermon on the Mount? And where we're guilty against the spirit of the law with anger or hatred, be careful. Hatred, Proverbs tells us in Proverbs 10 verse 12, hatred stirs up strife. Maybe look at some strife and see if it doesn't generate from some hatred in your heart. We need the warning, don't be like Cain. We need the encouragement to love one another. Cain-like behavior should not be present among God's children. Now, that doesn't mean it won't be present, but it's not to be present among God's children. See, the presence of Cain-like behavior, the lack of love for others, will be present not among, hopefully, but toward God's children. Listen to verse 13 of 1 John. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. I mean, it's just like a sidebar he throws into the middle of this. He's like, oh, Cain, don't be like that. Also, if, if you face that kind of behavior, don't, don't be surprised. But notice the line he draws again here. Brothers and, and the world. There's a, a clear distinction between those who love Jesus who are walking in the light as he is in the light, who are walking in the same way that Jesus did, and those who don't. A distinct line. Those, can, those lines can be a little bit blurred in very church places, but we need to know that there's an actual line. It's very real and it's very distinct. There is a difference between those who know Christ and those who don't know Christ, and it comes out in the way that they have affection or lack affection for one another, the way they live their lives, the way they're walking before God. It will come out. And so here, because there actually is a distinct line, John has to tell them, don't be surprised when you face some hatred from the other side of the line, from the world, if you're in Christ. 
Here's one of the promises that Scripture repeatedly gives us that no one wants to claim. Uh, people are all about claiming promises, but here's one that like no one, no one grabs that. Like, you're going to face hatred in the world. Don't be surprised at it. It's going to happen. And we need this exhortation to not be surprised because we are surprised, aren't we? Hey, every time I face difficulty and struggle or whatever little things I've faced, I'm always surprised. Like, what's going on here, God? How could the world be like this? Every time we forget, we're surprised. So we need to be told, don't be surprised. We forget. First John is going to say in First John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We forget that. We forget that the battle lines have been drawn. There should be surprise if the world totally accepts the people of God. Perhaps God's children who are no longer of the world should not be accepted by the world. Perhaps the acceptance and belonging in the world results from God's children not walking in the light as faithfully as they could. Here's what happens in the light in John chapter 3, starting in verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. And Jesus, as the light of the world, he he came to the world and he exposed darkness everywhere and he was despised, rejected, hated, murdered. And John has told his readers, you need to walk in the light as he is in the light. You need to walk in the same way in which he walked. And it's going to have a similar effect. Now, maybe not the same extent. We don't have the same context. All those things are true. But if we are walking in the light, guess what the darkness doesn't like? The light. You ever been like woken up in the middle of the night with like blazing light in your face? Like, I'm guessing you don't like that. No one does. The darkness does not like the light shining on it. And if we're going to walk in the same way Jesus walked, if we're going to walk in the light as he is in the light, then guess what? The darkness is not going to enjoy it all the time. When we abide in Jesus and we don't look to the world for love and acceptance or our identity or to justify our existence or for our own home, then the world doesn't understand that and doesn't then in return still give us love, acceptance, belonging, and a home. We don't belong there anymore fully. We belong to God. We have a new identity, a new destination. And so the world, all of a sudden, that where we were getting our identity, is like, what are you doing now? And they don't like it. Now, Jesus, he, he told his followers to expect this. In John chapter 15, listen to what Jesus says. If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Or John chapter 16, he says, in the world, you're going to have trouble. Now, likely John's readers are experiencing some trouble. Perhaps the the group that has has left them, that didn't remain with them, the the group that had set up maybe the Antichrist group where they're claiming something different about Jesus and trying to deceive and draw some of John's audience away, maybe that group has rejected them. Maybe they're facing hostility from them. 
And here's what John gives them, don't be surprised. And I wonder if that seems a little bit unsympathetic. Like maybe they're facing some hostility and John comes with this exhortation, don't be surprised. Like, yeah, you're, you're facing hostility. Deal with it. But I think that John's response here to whatever potentially they might be facing and to any hostility and opposition in the world is actually a faithful response. Because in this don't of don't be surprised, John is recognizing that this is expected, that there is now no need for the people of God to scramble and try to figure out a plan B as if something strange were happening. John instructs, don't be surprised. He doesn't call them to switch tactics now, like, oh, you're facing hostility? Let me think of something different than walking in the light, because that doesn't seem to be working. No, he says, walk as Jesus walked. He knows opposition, and he knows that in Christ and and before the Father, that all that opposition has been taken into account when Jesus tasked the church with making disciples of all nations. So it's not as if Jesus, the the head of the church, was was not thinking ahead and thinking like, well, they're going to face opposition, now I better come up with a new plan. No, he, he knows, John knows, he has confidence that Jesus knew that opposition was going to come when he sent us out into all the world. He's got this. So don't be surprised is a way of reassuring them, God's still got this. John had seen this played out, had he not? Probably way more up close than he would have preferred How close was he to the situation where Stephen was stoned, violently murdered? And what did he see as a result of that? The disciples started spreading out all over because of the opposition they were facing in Jerusalem, and they took the gospel with them, and it started spreading all over the place. That is the hatred and mistreatment and opposition John had seen and known in his own life over and over and over again didn't stop the advancement of the gospel to the nations. He knew that somehow in God's great wisdom that even opposition, hatred, persecution, even murder can still lead to the the greatness of God's glory, can show us that, that He is strong even in the midst of great suffering and pain and weakness and that God still receives the glory and the, the gospel and the kingdom still keep advancing even in the midst of all of this. So don't be surprised. It's not unsympathetic from John. It's actually faithful and I think hopeful. And I also think that it's, it's practically helpful. It, knowing that hate and opposition and persecution and all those things are coming and is not unexpected from Jesus' perspective or from a biblical perspective, doesn't that rob some of the power of that hatred and opposition? When I was playing football, this is my first year playing high school football, uh, we were 0-10 that year, so we weren't good pre-coach chaos, so, um, and we were playing what a team that would be the state champions, the, the mighty Thomas Terriers, if you guys know them, and so this is one of my first, like, real, like, these guys are good, and so we, we, we punted, we probably punted a lot, and, <laughs> and we kick it, and I'm, I'm on this guy, you know, I'm like, I've got him, I'm gonna get this guy, um, which was probably dumb, because I probably wasn't, but he, he goes, and he starts turning field, and I'm, I'm, I'm tracking with this guy. I'm turning, and, and I turn to go after him, and I see just a blur 
of a helmet smashing me in the chest. And I am, of course, laying flat on the ground after that. And I thought I would never play football again. There was a good, like, 30 seconds where I'm like, it's over. I'm done. It hurts so bad. Now, after that experience, I, you know what happened the next time? Because I'm guessing we punted a lot that game. Like, the next time, I was probably moving at, like, a third speed, like, crawling around, like, looking everywhere, like, making sure I wasn't going to get smashed in the, in the chest again and want to die. Knowing that there's potential to get blindsided, it, it helps take away a little bit of the sting. Now, not all of it. You're still going to get hit. It's still going to hurt. But now I've got my head on a swivel, and it's a little bit easier to navigate all the pain there. And not only, Christian, do we know that hate and opposition and persecution are all coming and are all to be expected, but we have the one who walked ahead of us. We know him too. And the light of the world who exposed all the darkness, who was a, a man of sorrows, rejected by men, even murdered and killed, he showed us the way. And so hate and opposition and persecution and even murder may come to us, but we follow one who already walked that path and came out the other side, so we know that we're going to be all right too. That his destination is our destination because we're in him. In Jesus, we have all the belonging, all the acceptance, all the love that we will ever need so that we can face the world's hatred, opposition, persecution, flat-out rejection of us because we know the man of sorrows, despised and rejected by men. He's our friend. He gives us all that we need so that we can face what he faced with his strength. So don't be surprised of Cain-like behavior towards you as a believer. It's to be not in and part of God's people, but will be directed at them, and it's not unexpected. But then John adds one final don't. And this one I add here, right? But I think it summarizes his point. Don't be like Cain. Don't be surprised. And finally, don't abide in death. Verse 14, he says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. I want us to always be people that, that read the scripture with, with gospel kind of lenses on. We're always looking for, for a nutshell of the gospel in each passage. And I hope you catch it here. Notice he says that we have passed from death to life, not by our love for brothers and for one another, but because our love for others, we know that we have passed, right? There's a difference there. We haven't passed from death to life by our love but we love others because we have passed from death to life. One can't love their way into life. As if, if, if you could just love enough to be saved. If that was true, then you wouldn't need a savior. He wouldn't have needed to die. We wouldn't need to be talking about some bloody crucifixion at all. That's not what John is saying. You have passed. And if you have passed, this is the result. Not if you love your brothers enough, then you know that you've passed. No, it's you have passed because of the work of Jesus. And because you've, have, you've passed from death to life, then you love your brothers. A clear evidence that one has believed and passed from death to life is love for brothers. John says this in John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And he doesn't come into judgment, but has passed 
from death to life, and a clear evidence that you have believed in Jesus and received him is that you love one another. Remember why John wrote. He wrote, verse John 5, 13, to you who believe that you might know that you have eternal life. And how has John been helping them know? How has he been helping them with assurance? Again, it's not through some secret. He hasn't plumbed the depths of hearing this whisper of God. He hasn't done any of that. He's been saying, this is a football. Love one another. He brings assurance to his readers here. He says, we know that we have passed from death to life. And what does he point to? How how do we know? And he says, love for brothers. Love for other believers. There's only one qualifier in this. Brothers. Now, it's not as if John is unconcerned about love in general or love for enemies. He's just not addressing that here. It's not as if he's unconcerned about it. But he does point to one of the clearest evidences of salvation. Love for other Christians. There is no concept of salvation without this. That one could be saved and not love other people who have been saved is not a concept that you see in the Scripture at all. There's no hint anywhere in the New Testament that one could be saved and not love other Christians. And in the New Testament, there's no concept of that love for other Christians not to be expressed within the context of actual people in the context of a church. You, you can't just be a Christian and say, I love other believers and not actually know any, not actually be in their lives and have their, but that is an easy way and a self form of love, right? It's easy to love someone from afar when we actually love is when we're in their lives. Some of that will come in the passages to follow. But brothers are those who share in the fellowship with the Father and with the Son who share in affirming Jesus as the Christ, who share in gospel truth with one another, and love for those who share in that fellowship should be present among believers. And there are, again, no other qualifiers here. He doesn't say or give the qualification that you are to love others with the exact same theological uh, convictions as you. He doesn't say you are to love others, especially those who aren't annoying to you, or love those with just similar political views as you, or similar vaccination conviction than you, or similar mask mandate desire than you. We might wish that he did that he'd give us a few more qualifiers, that way we could, you know, make the list a little shorter. And that might say something about our heart and its lurking sin. John just says to a group of believers who share fellowship with the Father and the Son, love one another. No qualifications. Us two. Love one another. So what do we do with those who are believers but disagree with us on almost everything? Different political view? different view on what we should do on X thing in the culture? What do we do? do? Our answer to that tells us a lot about whether we actually love one another and have passed from death to life. The biblical answer couldn't be more clear. This is a football. Love one another. We love 
because we have passed from death to life. And love takes our eyes off of ourselves and it fixes them on the one who first loved us. It fixes them on Christ himself. And when our eyes are fixed on Christ himself, it's really strange that all of a sudden we, we love and are fixed on the things that Jesus loves. And here's who Jesus loves, for sure, his redeemed. The ones he shed his blood for. And this is a, a home run for John. Again, he's not going after love for enemies. That matters. Jesus addresses that. John is just saying, you need to love one another. These are the ones who are redeemed by Christ. He poured out his blood for them. You ought to love them. Love, then, what it does is it moves us toward one another, especially those who, who are different than us. It moves us toward those who have differences from us. And we actually move toward them in a way where, where Paul and all these other one another commands come in play. We honor one another. We welcome one another in the Lord. Like that's the way that love, the love of Christ, moves us toward one another. Because we love those things that he loves. Because of the shared love of Christ, how could we not love others? Even if they have a different view on many different things. Do they love Jesus? And all of a sudden there's, there's a fellowship there. During World War I, on the Western Front, this was in 1914, this was the, the British and the German at that front and the Western Front, on Christmas Eve, there was kind of this impromptu ceasefire. They just stopped shooting and shelling one another, and they started singing Christmas carols across the lines. And on Christmas Day, people from both sides, they, they got out of the trenches, and they went into no man's land, and they would shake hands, they exchanged some gifts, cigarettes, and other things like that. They said Merry Christmas to one another. I mean, can you imagine the scene of people that have, have been shooting each other and at one another and, and so that they could gain the advantage, shelling one another all this time. And then all of a sudden there's this day where they just get up out of the trenches and they come meet in the middle and they say Merry Christmas and shake hands. Believer. Christ has drawn us out of the trenches into a place where there's always a Christmas truce. It's called the church. In Jesus, we're drawn from death to life, from fellowship with the darkness and life in the trenches to fellowship with the light and fellowship that that includes other people in that fellowship who are in Jesus and in the light. He has drawn people from all sorts of different trenches, political trenches, right? Sin trenches. The trenches are everywhere. And he draws them up into this place where he says, there's a Christmas truce here in my name that you, if you love me, ought to love these people that I have redeemed and put in this place. And it's in this community where the people who love Jesus actually evidence in their life their love for Jesus by loving those that are in that place too. Now, we know that on that day of the Christmas truce, some remained in the trenches. And we know that today, some still remain in the trenches, lacking love for brothers. But listen to John's words. At the end of verse 14, he says, Whoever does not love abides in death. And everyone, verse 15, who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Not only do those who don't love abide in death, which is a stark enough statement, but John says the one who even hates his brother is a murderer. 
No murderer has eternal life. He's not saying that if you've murdered, there's no invitation to repentance and having life in Christ. We know that Jesus, even while he was being murdered, cried out to God for the forgiveness of those who were performing the murder on him. So there's hope for murderers, right? In Jesus, there's forgiveness. If you confess your sin, then he is just to forgive you and to cleanse you of your sin. He's not saying that. One commentator, I think, sums up well what he is saying. If I hate somebody, I'm no different from a murderer in my attitude toward him. Such a person shares the nature of the devil. Do you remember in John chapter 8, Jesus is is going after the Pharisees and they're arguing with him. And he says, you're of your father, the devil, who's been murdering from the beginning. So if you're going to hate, then then you're going to show yourself, reveal yourself as seed of the serpent. He was the archetypal murderer, and therefore, it should come as no surprise that such a person cannot possibly possess eternal life. Hatred is incompatible with spiritual life. Now, my guess is that the end of verse 14 and verse 15 doesn't shock us, right? If you, if you hate, you don't have eternal life in you. You can't be Christ and hate at the same time. But within context and the content of these verses, shouldn't it lead us to question that do we have hate in us? Do we, let's turn it around. Do we lack love for, for brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we abide in death? If we lack love, we abide in death. Hating a brother is to be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and it's easy, church, for the evil one to gain leverage and a foothold in the life of the church by one who is just willing to hate. And John just says, Christians don't hate. Love one another. These don'ts that he gives us invite us to something. He's not just commanding, he's inviting. There's a better way than being like Cain, than being surprised, than abiding in death. He invites us to something better. Stop shelling one another and shooting at one another and get out of the trenches and join the joyful Christmas truth, truce in, in this place that Jesus has created with other believers. And one of the clearest evidences that one is out of the trenches and is a genuine believer is love for the people that Jesus has brought out of those trenches too. Now you guys know and have heard, and I have heard many, the stories of churches splintering during this time. The stories of churches that are dividing are are just multiplying in our very divisive age. And I just want to encourage you, that's not been my experience or the feel I have when I come here at all. Praise be to God. Man, when I come in here, there's feels the sense of unity as we unite around the truth of God's word. That's by the grace of God. I hope you sense that unity and love for one another too. It seems palpable some Sunday mornings to me. It's almost like it's just Christ is ministering to us and showing us again like we're, we're one. There's love for one another. But, but the repeated command to love one another is in the scripture for a reason. Because we still need it. We may not be splintering. I hope we're not. I don't think we are. I think there's such a great sense of unity and love for one another. But we could. And what keeps us from going that direction is commands like this. Love one another. 
the repeated command remains necessary to encourage us and to keep us. And just as Vince Lombardi has to tell the, the loss, after the loss, to his championship team that went on to win the next championship, he has to return to them and tell them, this is a football, and return to the fundamentals. We need the repeated call. Love one another. This is a football. We need to go back to this over and over and over again. We need, church, to love one another. And may Christ continue to multiply our love, increase our love for Him and for one another. The Apostle Paul, he dealt with the splintered church in Corinth. It was almost one of the first things he addressed, how they were divisive and dividing over different things that didn't matter that much. And in the midst of a splintering church, Paul calls them to a meal. There were issues in the way they were even taking the meal. That's how splintered they were with the way they lacked love for one another in taking the meal that we know as the Lord's Supper. And so Paul resets them. And I want to read his words in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. He says to them, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment." This is a one another meal that we have, a meal for and with one another that shows that we're for and with one another because we're for and with Christ. This is a meal that shows what binds us as family, Christ, who he is, what he has done, and his return. If you're his, this is a meal for you. Come and take this meal. There's plenty of time. If you need to examine yourself and turn from some things, do that. If you're not his, we also would warn of the judgment of taking this meal improperly. But if you're his, this is a family meal, a one another meal, a meal that we can take together as family because of what Christ has done. So let's bow in prayer as we prepare for this meal. Let's pray. Father, we, we need this reminder every minute of every day. Lord, we depend on you for everything. And you designed us that way. And you have not withheld one thing, God. You have loved us supremely there's nothing that we lack in Christ 
And because of that, Father, you have called us to love that way, to love without condition, to love unlike the world loves. The world can't love this way. It does not know you. It abides in a realm that is opposed to you, Lord. Help us understand what your love practically means, Lord. Keep us from measuring ourselves by a worldly standard. Keep us from thinking that we're loving people because we surround ourselves with people like us and people who agree with us want to do the same things that we do and talk about the same things that we talk about. Lord, your word tells us that the world loves that way, that the world measures itself that way. Lord, you've called us to love people who hate us. You called us to love our enemies. And if we're called to love our enemies, Lord, there's no one that's excluded. So Lord, teach us, continue to teach us, Father, what it looks like to love each other. We know that we can't learn that, Lord, unless we understand how you've loved us. We know that we can't do that, Lord, unless we abide in you. Help us to not walk in deception, Lord. Help us to walk in the light, to continue to seek your truth, community with your people. God, help us to be faithful to, on a daily basis, go back to the basics. It never gets old. We never outgrow it. We need your love, and we need to love others, God. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Would you join us and stand again, please? The Lord has demonstrated his love for us, and so we want to continue to declare that back to him. Let's sing this out together. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every morn, our sins are many, his mercy is more. 